Gary Masidis. Man, we finally made it happen, brother. Brian Lubin, great to be here, man. Thanks for the, uh, thanks, thanks for the invite. Looking forward to it. I'm so excited you accepting the invite, man, because this one came from a Facebook post that you did. Actually, a series of Facebook posts that you did within our GoBundance page. For those that are listening that are unfamiliar, GoBundance is a mastermind group Gary and I are members of, and it's for accredited investors, people that are high net worth that can come and talk about health, wealth, relationships, D, all the above. So a lot of high level conversation in the group. And Gary drops these posts where he just dives straight into every single aspect of capital, of loan products, of every single thing that he's seen in the market. And he just gives this market update. And everyone's like, this is the best thing we've seen all year. Gary, thank you so much. And I was like, dude, you got to do a podcast on this. And here we are. So introduce yourself to the people. Yeah, man, I wasn't expecting that kind of response to the post, quite frankly, but I was pleasantly surprised to be able to help people out. I've been in finance for about 33 years now, pretty much started out on Wall Street for 23 years and then came into the lending space. I started out in the private lending space. In fact, another GoBundance member, GoBro Joe Colaswano and his family pulled me off of Wall Street into lending a decade or so ago and started out as private lending with some of my former hedge fund investor clients from my Wall Street days. And then it just evolved into kind of a full-fledged commercial real estate lending business. I pretty much handle all types of commercial real estate lending with the exception of SBA for owner-occupied business properties. But ranges from rehab, fix and flip, bridge, DSCR loan. On those, I'm all on all those types, I'm a direct or private lender, depending on the loan. And then I also act in the capacity of a commercial mortgage broker for bank, credit union, government agency, larger permanent financing type loan. That's that's where I've been in a nutshell. And the days raising capital, part of my job when I was on Wall Street was raising capital for public company in the convertible bond market. So I was involved with a couple hundred billion dollars of capital raises then. And this is just, when I left Wall Street, it was bringing the skill set of Wall Street to Main Street. And that's my company slogan, tagline, whatever you want to call it. And I'm really here to, to help my investor clients succeed, build their real estate portfolios, optimize their financing, and just keep try to keep everybody on the right track and use my experience over the last 33 years to add value. Perfect. Now, do you lend to all 50 states or are you geographically like landlocked? It depends on the loan type. If I'm acting in the capacity of a direct lender, there's there's a handful of states, particularly out in the West, that either have licensing situations or are just difficult to be able to, to, to place paper in. Other than that, really the only other major restriction is geographically, not really geographic, but rural lending in the private lending space is not something that there's much appetite for that type of paper from institutional investors, et cetera. There are some limitations in rural that doesn't apply to bank and government agency financing. That's more specific. Okay. Uh, as we get a little bit deeper into loan types, I could, guess I can tell you now, there's a big difference between truly private lending and direct lending. So I do a bit of both. Private lending is, is truly like private money, whether that's 
friends and family, co-lenders, investor money, et cetera. And it's truly a private loan. Direct lending, there's a difference there. Most people, when they say they're a direct lender, what they mean, and they won't generally tell you, is that they are, you're facing their company as a borrower for the loan, but ultimately it's getting sold off, packaged up and sold off into mortgage-backed securities, just like a residential loan would to, uh, it's not going to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, but it's going to like the private, equity, yeah, private equity funds, insurance companies, institutional investors. So there's a difference there. So it depends when you ask me the question, since I handle so many different loan types, there's not a straightforward answer because it's different for each lending vertical. Yeah, I guess I more so was asking from just the perspective of for anybody that was looking to do business with you that listens to this show. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's in most states, I can, in almost every state I can lend. It's just a question of what capacity. So Perfect. yes. Now let's go ahead and plug your company. We normally save the company plug towards the end, but for this one, we're about to get into so much that I just want to let you rip. So go ahead and plug your company because right now people are already like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I started out as a solopreneur. So I have a few people working with me now. So I'm, I'm a smaller company. So it's not like when you come to do a loan with me, you're getting handed off to somebody that, you know, is just going to take it and run with it. You have me directly involved with, with every loan that comes through. The name of my company is GSM Commercial Capital. You can find us online, website gsmcommercialcapital.com. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera. What's your sweet spot? What's your sweet spot so that people that are listening can know what deals to bring to you, what deals to avoid? Sure. So the, I guess I would say the sweet spot let, we'll go by we'll go by loan product just to give everybody kind of a target. So in the rehab space, certainly the one to four family where I'm a direct lend virtually nationwide. That's pretty much wide open as long as the as long as the purchase price is over a hundred thousand dollars and the total loan is less than two million dollars. Then you know that will fit. You could be experienced or inexperienced. It's just going to impact slightly your pricing and leverage that you're able to get on those type of loans. In the uh, in the truly private space, I would say that that's typically, I use it more for five plus unit properties, mixed use, warehouse, commercial use, the kind of the non-homogenous, non-one to four family space where generally it's more cost efficient to go with institute and institutional money loan as a direct lender. The challenge with the uh, with the truly private lending is I'm located in New Jersey, I lend throughout the country, but it's got to be something that is a, is a fit because it's tough to really have eyes on projects, personally have eyes on projects throughout the country. So it's more case by case, unless you're in the New Jersey PA kind of marketplace. But I've done private loans recently in Chicago, Florida, North Carolina. There, there's, there's plenty of localities that we can do that. If it's government agency, which is geared towards larger multifamily, primarily properties of a million and a half and up, that's nationwide. There's no constraints there. Just can't be smaller properties because they don't fit the government agency metrics. And we can get into that. Bank financing, where I'm acting in the capacity of a mortgage broker, that's something that I can technically lend in pretty much in any marketplace. 
but I can't tell you with a straight face that I have relationships with banks in every single market. So it's really kind of to areas that I either already have relationships in or someone's comfortable with me finding the best situation for them within their geographic area, which happens quite frequently as well, even if I don't have relationships. Perfect. Sweet. Well, then let's start diving into your different, the different loan products and kind of the updates that you are posting within the community on this post. I've got it pulled up as well. So yeah, I'll just let you take the reins with it and then start it and take it wherever you want to go, man. You're the expert here. I'm okay. just sitting back. Right. All right, cool. So one of the more, why don't we start with one of the more popular programs these days for small, the smaller investors or not necessarily smaller investors, but smaller properties, the one to four family space. Sure. The one of the more common loan products out there that some people are aware of and some people have really no idea exists is the DSCR loans, yep. which stands for debt service coverage ratio. These are loans that there's a very light underwriting on. There's no global cash flow underwriting from the lender side. So as a, an investor and borrower, there's no underwriting of your tax returns, your pay stubs, W-2s, 1099s, none of that. It's just based on your credit score, the value of the property, which needs to be at least $100,000 minimum. Again, it's in the one to four family space and it's based on the cash flows of the property. And there's a very low bar in terms of the cash flows that are needed with these type of loans in order to, in order to get kind of maximum financing. Whereas your typical bank would finance a one to four family property with a commercial mortgage with a 20 or 25 year amortization. This program has a 30 year, so it's able to spread out the payment over a longer time frame, keep your cash flows a little bit stronger. Also, the banks will add in the same haircuts that an appraiser would when they're looking at the cash flows of your property. So they're going to, they're going to haircut your rent for vacancy factors, management sure. fee, yeah. landlord paid expenses, maintenance and repairs, et cetera. DSCR loans, all it is, is the principal interest, taxes and insurance compared to your lease payment. If your credit score is above 720, the lease only needs to cover your PITI 1.1 times. If it's between 680 and 719, it needs to cover 1.2 times. So there's many cases where bank financing, the cash flows may limit you to a 50%, 60% debt loan to value, whereas you can get 70 to 75% on a debt service coverage ratio loan with very limited underwriting and something that you can close in three weeks and aren't going to feel like you gave up your firstborn kid in the underwriting process. Whereas bank loans... That's a 45 to 60 day process, typically 60 days or so, and it's fully underwritten. And it's just, it's something that is a very easy product to, uh, to get financing from. It works on purchases as well as refis. Purchases, you can go up as high as 80% loan to value. Okay. Uh, cash out refis, you can go up to 75. And then the interest rate's just slightly higher on the DSCR than traditional. Depending on the bank and the region. So really? the interesting thing, bank rates these days in the New York, New Jersey, PA, tri-state area, they're, let's say, in the six and a half, six and three quarter range for kind of the best rates at this point, given the recent move in treasuries. And I'm talking to some people in the South and Midwest and West where most banks are in many of those situations are already in the sevens 
There's some banks that are in the eights. Keeping in mind that prime, the prime lending rate right now is seven and three quarters, which really shocks some people when they're going to take, let's say, a construction loan or something, and it's tied to prime. And they're, they're paying rates that are at least as high and sometimes higher than the DSCR program in some market. DSCR loans right now, they've adjusted over the last three to four weeks for a pretty nasty sell-off in the treasury market where rates really um, rose about 50 basis points. We're seeing rates, you can get rates as low as in the mid sixes with buy downs on DSCR loans, but without a hefty buy down, realistically, you're talking like mid sevens at this point for most DSCR loans as of this week. And for people listening, just to punctuate what he's talking about with DSCR, this is really helpful for those that are in the 1099 position, those that are out of the W-2 position. Now you're not going to have to have those income requirements anymore. You're not going to have to have all that underwriting done on your job and on your income. So it's like for guys like me that don't even qualify technically for a traditional loan anymore, I do DSCR. And then that's what you're going to have to do when you exit your job. That's what you, that's the path of progress you have to take. Sweet. Sure. You want to go into your fix and flip bridge loans or do you want to do the larger? You want to work your way up? Let's work our way up. Might as well go to fix and flip and bridge since we're primarily in the one to four space so far. Again, there's the, uh, the institutionally backed loans. Typically these days and with my company, we can get leverage as high as 90% of purchase price plus 100% of rehab it, for experience experienced borrowers. There's a lot of different kind of buckets of experience or nodes on the grid or the matrix as far as someone's experience versus the purchase price and the amount of rehab that they're doing, whether it's light rehab, medium rehab, heavy rehab. So there's a lot of different kind of boxes to in the grid that go into the equation of what kind of leverage we can give. So it's tough to give you just, hey, this, this type of loan Here's the leverage you can get. It depends on experience, credit score, and the the amount of the rehab relative to the purchase price, I would say. I would say rates on those these days are primarily in the mid-10s to 12s, depending on whether you're super experienced or no experience. By comparison, those rates six months ago, eight months ago, they were in the mid-7s for super experienced guys. And probably in the tens to maybe 11 for inexperience. So there's definitely been an adjustment there. And in the in the private space, most private money is still around the 12% mark. On all these loans, there's some type of points involved, whether it's DSCR, fix and flip, uh, private, points, you know, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, it really depends on the situation. But the private money is a lot closer. It's higher, but it's not that much higher than the institutional money at this point. And there's some benefits. There's always trade-offs, right, with any loan type. And the thing is, a lot of lenders have some of these loan types available. Most lenders don't do all the loan types. They're usually one or two verticals. Maybe they're a rehab lender and they do DSCR loans, or they just focus on one of the two. But most of those guys don't focus on the, the commercial brokerage side for the permanent takeout financing. It really, I guess what I was going to say is even if somebody has the same tools, not everybody uses them the same way. So yeah. really, it's really important to understand what someone's looking to accomplish. And if you're not the hammer where everything looks like a nail, you can really help put together the best solution based on what someone's looking to do. 
And sometimes it's uh, it's using something that looks like a permanent solution for what they thought was something they wanted a bridge loan on. There's a guy from Go, a GoBro from Go GoBundance that was looking for a bridge loan on a property down in Tennessee a few months ago. And I looked at it and it ends up that it made a, a lot more sense to do a DSER loan, even if he ended up doing a pre, paying a prepayment penalty on it. It was cheaper financing if he held it for the 12 to 15 months that he was planning. So really got to think outside the box and know what someone is looking to accomplish. And if you have all the tools available, you can custom tailor something for them. Yeah. And then on your post, you said that you're seeing more interest in bridge and rehab on larger projects, mixed use warehouse, and then no meaningful change in terms from December. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, I'm seeing, and I'm not sure how much of it is that when you build a client base over time, a lot of that is organic growth. And as the kind of the natural progression is people to start out with smaller properties and work up into bigger properties so there's over time. So there's definitely some of that going on, but I'm getting a lot more inquiry from guys that are syndicator types or not just a sole investor in a transaction. And I'm definitely seeing a larger multifamily. I'm seeing a fair amount of people looking at potential conversions, let's say, of an office space into into a multifamily. So I'm definitely seeing that type of stuff. There's plenty of interest still in the warehouse and flex space as well. I'm doing some private rehab lending in that space. That was a Chicago loan that I mentioned that I closed recently was 30,000 square feet of flex space in Chicago that was vacant, needed total revamp. And that operator already owns a couple hundred thousand square feet out there that have helped them over time get stabilized. So uh, those type of projects are definitely out there. Sweet. So let's transition now into the larger multifamily and mixed use financing. Sure. So pretty much there's a couple different options available as you get into the larger projects. And for bank financing, it doesn't have to be super large, right? If you go to a bank with a hundred or $200,000 loan, they might not give you much, uh, much play or much check or conversation. But once you start to get in the 300,000 to a million space, the banks start to come alive there. And depending on the size of the bank, as you get into the multi-million dollar space, there if it's a smaller community bank, their appetite might be good up to several million dollars. If it's a larger community bank, maybe it could go up to $10 million of appetite. So it really depends on the lender. The regional banks, they could have exposure limits of 60, 70, 80 million dollars per borrower. But so the banks fill the void in that 300 to million space in terms of loan amount that is below where government agency kicks in. Once you get into the million dollar plus space, pretty much like a million dollar loan amount and up, then we can take a look at both agency versus bank and see what makes more sense. There's trade-offs, either one. However, it's a matter of understanding what someone's situation is, what type of exit they're looking at, whether they're looking to refinance within a certain amount of time. And I'll give you, I'll give you a good, a real good example of how this decision making process can come into play when someone comes to me with a larger multifamily. I had someone in Texas come to me earlier this week on a 24 unit property that he happens to own in Texas. 
and he was looking at potentially selling versus refinancing. And so we modeled it up on bank terms. Banks will typically only go to 25-year amortization. Some areas will only go to 20. Occasionally, you'll find a lender that will go to 30-year amortization. Where banks can excel is some of them will go off of pro forma, meaning looking forward rents instead of what the in-place rents are, whereas government agency can only go off of in-place rents. So, so if you have a property that you're either buying or refinancing or, or like some type of value add, and it's way below market rents, and it may not cash flow to the point where an agency loan might make sense. But once your value add is done to the property and you've brought rents up closer to market, then the cash flows might make for a better government agency situation. The pricing is pretty very different on the two. As we talked about, banks can be anywhere between six and a half and eight at this point. Government agency loans start still in the mid to high fives. And with the tightening of lending that's been occurring over the last six months, banks that used to do 10-year rate locks or seven-year rate locks, it's almost non-existent right now with limited exception. They're only locking the rate for five years at a time on projects at banks, whereas government agency, it's quite common to get a 10-year rate lock at levels that are below where the banks are locking for five years. So if you have something that's truly buy and hold and you know that you're not going to be looking to refi or sell in the next 10 years, if the cash flows are there, it's totally makes sense to look at government agency. The only real downside to government agency, I would say, and it's not a downside, it's just a trade-off, is the prepayment penalty structure typically matches the term of the rate lock. And the typical prepayment penalty structure, pretty much if you take out a government agency loan and rates go down and you go to refinance or sell, as the real estate investor, you're pretty much going to make up the, your penalty is pretty much going to make whole the investor that bought that loan that was expecting to get 6% a year for the next 10 years. If rates are down at 5%, you refinance. Well, that's 1% a year on that loan that you're basically going to get hit with as a prepayment penalty. Just to mm -hmm. keep it simple, it's a more complex term called yield maintenance. But that's one thing to be aware of in agency. That's one of the trade-offs. And they look for a little bit higher debt service coverage ratio, and they're only going off of in-place rents. But so anyways, this guy in Texas that, that came to me, it ends up that instead of refinancing or selling, what he really wants to do is a partner buyout. And the rents are a little bit below market because they've done some rehab work over the last year or so. So he doesn't have all the units back online. And by like just having a real conversation with him, I was able to find out what he's really looking to accomplish. He wants to buy out his partners now. In a couple of years, he wants the flexibility to refinance once the property is fully restabilized at market rents. We talked about bank financing. We looked at government agency. We were like, clearly the 10 year, the 10 year prepayment penalty isn't going to work. So the structure we're looking at now is a Freddie Mac product, a commercial product, a five year rate lock with a two year prepayment penalty. Rates are still in the sixes on it. It's almost like using a permanent loan as a bridge loan and still without having the gun to your head of having to do something by taking out a true bridge loan 
where in a year or two years or whatever the maturity is forced to do something. Just kind of cool way to use a permanent product as a temporary lending product to accomplish what he was looking to do. Yeah, I was looking at your post when you were talking about the Freddie Mac loan. You said in December, Freddie Mac will now do commercial government agency loans on portfolios of two to four family properties. Two min, two mi- is that two million minimum loan and maximum, or is that two yes. units? Yeah, two two million. Yeah, so two so million. yeah, so let's let's just cover so the basics of government agency. So whereas banks will finance almost any commercial asset type, commercial real estate asset. Government agency is geared primarily towards properties with at least five apartment units with a minimum loan amount typically of a million dollars and up. And they go into the hundreds of millions. So mm-hmm. they, they go, they'll go to very large loans. They'll also do some mixed use. The guidelines are a little different when you're looking at Fannie versus Freddie, but there's some situations where we can get uh, a property that's mixed use where the commercial use is up, upwards into the 40% range, commercial use and only 60% residential. And we could still use agency for that. So it's generally for what's considered commercial real estate, which means five units and up multifamily and not the one to four family space. So whereas you can do commercial loans on residential one to four family properties, they're still not commercial properties. They're considered residential. Whereas multifamily, if everything is multifamily units, if it's five units or more, it's considered a commercial. So what changed in December is Freddie Mac came out with a new portfolio program for two to four family properties. So this is the first time that anybody's had the ability to use commercial financing with government agency on two to four family residential investment properties. And basically they set the bar where it has to be at least 10 units and it has to be at least a loan amount of 2 million or above. For the first time you have a bank alternative. And so you're getting the 30 year amortization you're getting a 10-year rate lock if you want if you want to structure it that way. There's a lot of different ways we can structure. And the other benefits of government agency is whereas the banks underwrite based on all kind of the deep dive into the tax returns, W-2s, 1099s, pay stubs, etc. Government agency is no tax returns. So for guys like you, Brian Lubin, that aren't in a W-2 anymore. You not only have the DSCR loans available, but you potentially have government agency loans available as well without the tax returns as a hindrance to the process. Yeah. And then so just to clarify on this, I believe I understand. So when we're talking, so we're talking portfolios of two to four family properties. So if you're an investor that has multiple duplexes, quadplexes, you've got these scattered throughout your portfolio, then you just mm-hmm. need a minimum of 10 of those in your portfolio and you can get this entire loan on your portfolio. Correct? That's correct. Okay. That perfect. perfect. Absolutely correct. Yep. For sake of time, I want to do a quick pivot, just a, a rapid fire Q&A kind of that I had so that we can finish up because this has been fantastic. What do you see on the home equity line of credit in the C business in general? Like, where do you see that with lending? That is a space that is really not very developed. So, in in commercial lending, there are lines of credit available against one to four family properties and commercial properties. 
In fact, I just closed an $800,000 credit line on 24-unit multifamily for another GoBundance member today. But there's a difference between the commercial lines of credit and the HELOC, the home equity line of credit. We'll talk about the residential. We'll talk about the residential. Because I'm looking at right now, I've got two properties that have a couple hundred thousand dollars tied between them. And I'm trying to figure out a, like I've got one that's still a primary that I just moved, like moved out of and I'm renting an apartment while I still own the primary. So I'm just trying to think about my own loan products that I can take to tap into that equity. And I'm trying to decide if I want to do a cash out refinance. And if that may be my only option with the investment versus doing any kind of LOCs on the properties. You could do a line of a bank, a commercial, like your local community bank or local credit. Without the W-2, it depends on someone's global financial situation, whether from an underwriting perspective. But the underwriting is going to be very similar on a commercial line of credit as it is a commercial refinance on a residential one to four family property held in an LLC. If someone has the qualifications for a commercial mortgage on that property, then they have the qualifications for a line of credit. And it's pretty much the same underwriting process. Whereas in the true resi space, owner-occupied residential property, HELOC, those are like you go to your local lender for a couple hundred bucks, they do a drive-by appraisal or whatever kind of appraisal they do. Within a couple of weeks, you're wrapped up and you have your HELOC and you're good to go. On a com- If you're doing a commercial style line of credit, it's the full underwrite. It's the 45 to 60 days full underwrite. And there's some bells and whistles on the structure of the line of credit. You're typically annually renewable or biannually renewable by the bank. So technically they Sounds can pull. Terrible. Yeah, te- technically they can pull a, a credit line. So you want to make sure it's with a bank that isn't known for doing that in tough times. And see how they operated back in the Great Recession and whether or not they pulled credit lines. And some of them had, some of them didn't. They stuck with people. It's otherwise, I really don't do much in the HELOC space. So I'm not going to really be able to shed much light on HELOC specifically. Sure. And then the last question would be, where do you see things going moving forward? Because I think that we're at a stalemate. I don't really foresee them raising too much, but I also don't see them coming back down to what we were used to before. So what do you see yeah. in kind of overall macro? I mean, with, with the caveat or the disclaimer that after 23 years of Wall Street and trying to do a lot of predicting, it, it becomes a bit of a fool's errand. But if I wanted to put my opinion out there, I think that we're near the top end of the range in... Uh, 10-year treasuries, five-year treasuries, which is what a lot of this commercial mortgages are are based on. Clearly, there's a lot of fear still of the Fed raising rates, and we're seeing that at the short end of the yield curve. However, the curve is starting to invert a little bit more where the short end is moving up more than the long end. In fact, the long end has started to temper down over the last couple of days. So I think that's the overall market, the market rules, right? Regardless of what the Fed says, whatever's going on in the market, it's going to be driven by supply and demand. And I think I think we're at an inflection point. I think we hit an inflection point where unless something really changes that around that 4% level in 10-year treasuries, for example, that we hit again a couple of days ago and went through, I think that's a stopping ground or a high point for a while. That's my take, but take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> Fair. All right. Plug your, plug your company one more time. 
All right, it's GSM Commercial Capital. You can find us website, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera. And we're, we're here to help. Perfect. Gary, man, appreciate you coming on. It's been a freaking masterclass. Thank you so much for this. Right, thanks for having me, brother. All right. Appreciate that, it. That, 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 it's been Gary and Brian with the Action Academy Podcast signing off.